Welcome to Geared for Growth. I'm your host, Mike Mortlock from MCG Quantity Surveyors. Now, today we're talking to a Brisbane-based buyer's agent all about onboarding his investor clients. How do they get clear on the strategy that is going to help them achieve their outcomes? And what happens when potentially that investor is trying to derail the plan by suggesting different properties? It's an awesome interview that speaks to strategy and how you can use due diligence to maximize the potential growth of those assets. We're talking to Shane Hiscock, who is the founder of Low Locate Buyers Agency in Brisbane. And as I mentioned, this is all about getting clear on your strategy and making the plan first and the property second and how we can change those statistics to make sure that we aren't one of the ones that only ends up with one property or not making a purchase that underperforms and doesn't achieve the aims of why we set out to invest in property in the first place. It's an awesome interview with Shane, which I'm sure you'll get something out of. Here's Shane. Shane Hiscott, thanks for joining me on Geared for Growth. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate you having having me on the show. Well, the idea goes all the way back to 2023, but we're here now anyway. Now, um, the topic for today is really all about sort of building that culture and that relationship with the client and also kind of the onboarding process as well. So let's say a property investor comes to you. I assume it's more sophisticated than you just kind of saying, oh yeah, what's your budget? Well, that looks like a good property. Give us a little bit of a lowdown about how you undertake that process. Yeah. So um, when we we first meet, we have uh, quite a detailed session just regarding what their goals are and where they're headed with the property purchase. Um, specifically, we're looking to understand, you know, are they capital growth driven or or cash flow driven? Um, and we're also obviously looking to understand the budget. Those couple of things there are really going to help us determine the locations that we're looking to to buy in. Um, and I guess as well, we are quite vocal in suggesting that we should be aiming for capital growth. I believe that that's really the goal for investing in property rather than um, receiving a fairly nominal cash flow each year that um, that doesn't really change your life too much and potentially um, may not result in a lot of capital growth. So we're certainly um, you know, suggesting to go for capital growth, but always find that people have a little bit of a requirement to reach a certain yield rate. So uh, what we do is we understand all that in the initial meeting and then we go away and we put a strategy together. And so with that strategy in mind, uh, we'll target uh, particular areas and suburbs where we feel we can achieve the goals that they've set and we bring in a you know a set of criteria that we recommend as well. So those kinds of criteria would be we're certainly always looking for an average annual 10-year uh, growth rate of 7 plus percent because uh, we know the rule of 72 says that you know if it's over 7%, then it's going to double in a 10-year period. So we're targeting suburbs certainly with that criteria and other things such as the um, capital, the uh, sorry, um, owner-occupier ratio. Yep. Uh, we look for at least 70% owner-occupier. The reason for that is that we know owner-occupiers tend to look after their homes uh, and they tend to upgrade them and do them up and renovate. And those uh, activities tend to, um, you know, help bring suburb values up as well. So they're, they're some of the key criteria that we work with. Uh, and then we kind of have our set target areas, so to speak, and we really get stuck into the search then. Yeah, that's um, 
That's an interesting point about um, the owner occupy stuff. It's actually borne out in our data for the investors that occupy and then rent out. They're actually spending less on average. Um, sorry, fifty um, percent less on average than um, the people that just rent it out straight away. So yeah, if they spend some time in it, they're going to spend double the money that the people just turn it into a rental and rental. And of course that impacts the streetscape and the feel and, you know, prices as well. I'm interested in your thoughts on your sort of responsibilities to kind of hold the client to account. What, what I mean by that is that a buyer's agent could be an order taker, right? Like you could say, someone could come to you and say, I want to buy this and you can go, all right, well, I'm going to help you negotiate and do your due diligence. But I know that you're, you're an analytical person that wants the best result for your client. And sometimes you'll have to say, look, Mr. And Mrs. Client, you came and you said you want this, but like you're pushing me in another direction. How, how do you play that game? And do you think that most buyer's agents will have the tough conversation, conversation or are some order takers? Oh, I think some will just roll with it just to kind of get the property purchased and roll to the next one. However, uh, we we have a strong set of values in the business that we that we hire based on as well. And the first uh, value that we stick to is do the right thing. So for me, that means if we feel like it's not a great investment and it's not matching up with you know what we spoke about in our initial meetings and what the goals were, then we'll call that out for sure. Uh, a really good example is I bought for a lady a couple of years ago where we had that initial meeting she really just focused and wanted capital growth, uh, but then started and and we what we did is we we mapped out a few areas and I explained uh, in that call and in the subsequent strategy meeting that um, the best capital growth uh, for the sort of budget that she had is ideally achieved in around the within say the ten kilometer ring or thereabouts. And the reason for that is that most of those suburbs, not all, but just as a general comment, most of those suburbs were subdivided around just after the war era right. so they're what we call a post-war home so they're, they're properties that can be removed and the, the closer you come in the more character homes you find right and they can't be removed and you know there's a bit of maintenance but we suggest the post-war type of property because people do come in knock those over and as you said make the street look more beautiful and it drags values up so we'd agreed on that but what started to happen during the search um was she was sending me uh, beautiful properties, pretty houses, right? And sometimes the investment's not the pretty house. Uh, mm. And so um, I remember waking up to uh, 33 messages from midnight to 3 a.m. with all different properties in our WhatsApp oh, group uh, that she's saying, I really like all of these, all around Brisbane, um, which which were great, had us running everywhere. But I had to, had to put a pause on it and just say, look, all of the properties that you're sending are just that next level out. So they were subdivided, you know, a little later in time, more around the 70s, 80s. And what those suburbs comprise of are the newer homes, uh, typically brick. Uh, they are on good size blocks of land often. However, they're not at the stage where people are knocking them down yet and, and you know, rebuilding. So they're, they're, they're really a little bit away from achieving a little bit of accelerated growth. They're just going to ride the market. Whereas coming into the post-war uh area you can you can actually achieve a bit of acceleration by those people you know doing up houses etc so we had to have the hard conversation i said look love what you're sending me they're all pretty they're very nice but this is what we discussed this is this is you know where we're going to get the most growth your call because at the end of the day it's my job to 
fulfill on someone's requirements. But as I said, with our values, it's my job as well to say when I feel like we're going in the wrong direction. So I said, it's your call. However, I strongly suggest that we stick to these uh, areas uh, for the reasons we've discussed before. And I re-explained the uh, situation with those newer suburbs and, and she did pivot and say, look, yep, you're the expert. I'll go with your recommendation. And uh, we secured a, a post-war house on 600 square metres. And um, I'm always looking for a bit of an X factor when I'm buying. And, and with that particular house uh, across the road, a builder that I know here in Brisbane had purchased a site uh, and he builds quite high-end homes. And so uh, what I've noticed, because I've watched him for many years, is that when he goes into a street, he'll tend to build this really nice house. And then all of a sudden, you know, pick up a few extra blocks in there and you know, build three or four of them. And what it does is that it really sets a bar a little bit higher and, and other uh, people who might want to build for themselves will come in and say, look, um, uh, we, we can actually build that. I can probably pay a bit more for that site now and you get an acceleration in the value of the site. So, mm. uh, yeah, that's a bit well, of an extended version of answer to the question. But yeah. No, I, I love the case studies and, and, and I love the fact that you've, you know, certainly at the end of the day, we all have to make money. We all have to execute on the request or the order or what have you. But there's a point in time where you kind of say, well, this doesn't fit my ethos or the reason why I started the business. So I, I'm compelled to say blah, blah, blah. Cause that's part of the reason why people, you know, know, like, and trust you anyway, cause they know that you're going to do that. So good on you for that. Right. I, I want to ask you the question about, um, looking at, you know, some of the the metrics that you talked about, you know, the 70% owner occupied, we talked about that, um, you know, 7% or more growth over a 10 year period. I've heard people say before that you know, prior growth is no predictor of, of future growth. Do you think that is just one of those stories that gets thrown around or, or in your experience, you know, on the ground in, in Brisbane, it is a fairly sort of set trajectory of something that is valuable. It'll continue to keep pushing above other other areas or other dwelling types? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I um, a few years back, I, I went into about 10 suburbs in terms of when I say went into, I I picked a few different streets in, in 10 different suburbs and I traced back history and I went back and predicted, you know, and saw what the growth rates were. And obviously since then I've watched where those properties have gone. And um, if you're staying... Uh, you know, reasonably close into the city, so you're not near any new large subdivision potentials, uh, then it is quite predictable that you will get growth. Now, growth it never is linear, uh, you'll notice, right? It's always, um, you know, it's, it, it goes pretty strong for a couple of years and then it might sort of flatline for a bit and then it'll go strong, it'll be strong again. And so that's just the key thing that we do run through with, with people. But if you stick in that 10K ring, then as a general rule, um, yeah, properties in 10 years time, you can expect some pretty good growth. So, um, mm. yeah. And, and that sort of triggers the, the next question in 10 years time, right? When I look at say social media around property investing, I feel like the 10 years time, the 20 years time, the, the patient investing, that kind of seems to have been blown away by the hot spotting and the data and the boom locations. No, you know, not not mining towns. I think people have become much more sophisticated. You know, that I'm going to buy a place for eighty grand that's renting a thousand dollars a week and then you know maybe vacant for ten years. But what what are what are clients like when they're coming to you now? There's so much more data. There's so much more media. There's so much more education. Do people mm -hmm. have that? that patience in the long-term mindset and do they have the trust in the professionals or do they have, they feel like they've got all the answers themselves? 
Oh, there, there's a real mix. And, um, you know, we do have a lot of people that come to us that are you know, very data heavy and, and want to invest in these kind of up and coming kind of areas. I do feel that there's a little bit of risk in that. And, um, and I guess I do tend to stick in towards the major cities just because there's, there's the history, right? There's the history's there rather than trying to use a whole bunch of data to predict what's going to happen. Uh, most of our clients are wanting s safe and steady returns rather yep. than a hotspot style of property. So um, if they are looking for more of that, you know, hotspot type of area and um, the, the data heavy, you know, what's coming infrastructure, like all of the real nuts and bolts of all that. I find that sometimes that um, you can get lost in the weeds of all that data mm. and it kind of can overshadow how an area may have really been performing, you know, in, in the past 10, 20 years or so. So um, for us, if, um, if it's clear that uh, a person's after something maybe more regional or a bit more hotspot, um, we're happy to just say that's, that's not our forte. We don't, uh, you know, we're not in those areas and we're not on the ground. I'm a firm believer that um, being on the ground and understanding intimately the different streets and the different areas is also quite critical in investing. And I think a lot of um, a lot of the data-driven kind of information then results in people just grabbing any property in that suburb because that they feel like that's, well, all the data says that suburb is going to grow. Um, and, and it may well, but you might just be able to do a little bit better by being a little selective and understanding uh, the intricacies of the suburbs, for example. Yeah. And I suppose if, if people listening, think about their own suburb, they'll know, okay, well that one gets, you know, a bit of a, bit of a, you know, a bad breeze or it has a bit of housing commission or there's so many cars that get, you know, parked on the street in that area. It's a nightmare. And I guess that's, that's true for everywhere. And without being, you know, having the boots on the ground in that area, you miss out on that. And if you are just going for a house in a suburb, you know, the difference between streets, you could have multiple percents per year, different street to street, right? Easily. And yeah, we always say there's the A, B and C, D street, you know, the A streets, yeah. the B streets, the C and the D. And so I think it is important to know what those are um, because you could just kind of eat into your first five years growth by paying, you know, $50,000 or more for a property just because you're comparing it to something that sold in a better street that you weren't aware that that street actually just attracts a little bit more, you know, prestige or value for whatever reason. So yep. it's, it's pretty easy to kind of get that mixed up. Um, uh, I remember doing uh, some research many years ago when I was building a splitter block over in, um, that was in Mount Cravat East. And I was comparing the site to some other sales in the area. And it wasn't until I drove there and went, Oh, this, this site that I was looking at is on the ridgeline. It's high up and it's quite different to two streets away. And the values are very, very, you know, they're vastly different. So it's important to know that, I think. So when an investor comes to you, I'm interested in the idea of, of being a good client. Now, it comes a bit counterintuitive, right? Because someone's going to pay for your service. So they kind of feel like, well, I have all the power. You have to do, you know, what I've asked you to do. But I've I've been thinking more about about being a good client in terms of saying to you, Shane, here here is what I want to achieve in the future. Here's what I have done some research on. Here's what is important to me. Um, and and I've tried that a, a few times in my personal life. And when you work with a service provider that is excited to work with you, I can't help but feel like the results are going to be better. So I'm just interested, like, are there good clients that bring the right information, the right attitude that you are excited to work with? 
100 right and, and they're the clients that um you know come to you because they see that you are the professional in the space and they're willing to consider your opinions and your thoughts and be guided by you know those suggestions and so um but certainly you know there are sometimes and, and not always but and we try and vet that through that initial meeting situation like if we feel like we're not going to be the right fit for somebody and that we might clash a little bit because um you know there are certain opinions that they might hold that may not match ours then we'll call that out early and, and just you know suggest maybe that we don't work together mm. however um most are really good a lot come with some ideas of where they want to want to be and it's about then us you know refining that for them a little bit uh, i was mentioning um before that we uh, sorry earlier before we started the, the yep. podcast that we'd bought for a client uh, a wall store apartment right uh, he'd come to us uh, wanting to buy a wall store because he'd done some research and he'd looked into everything and he thought these, these are really good and we like the look of them and they're low maintenance and there's, you know, there's no lawn mowing and no upkeep and that kind of thing. Um, and he actually wanted to buy two. So uh, what we did is we, we found a few options for him. And then as I was saying, it's our job then to then uh, ensure that he buys the right one. One of the buildings in particular, because uh, we analyzed all three and we went back through the sales history of all three buildings uh, one in particular we noticed uh, didn't have a lot of growth and on average was around 2 to 3% annual growth rate, which is, is not overly exciting. And the other thing in terms of our research then for that building, uh, we found out that a site directly over the road from it, uh, which was on the water, was purchased by a Melbourne developer and there were concept drawings for three towers there. So the, the views were going to be lost as well. Um, so in that sense, um, yes, he wanted a wall store, but we just guided him into the right one where we found uh, the other one of the other buildings um, had very little sales turnover, and um, we had to go back twenty to thirty years just to get some data. But we found that it, they were doubling in less than ten years on average through the building. So, mm -hmm. so that's an example where um, you know the client had the idea, but then it was our job to guide them into the right thing. We could have just went and bought the other one in the other building, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it was actually a, a lower price. Um, because yeah, no problems. Let's buy it. However, again, our values and my, uh, you know, I guess um, ethics will have me go, oh, no, no, no. I need to look into this. I need to make sure that this is going to be a good investment. I don't want a phone call in five years and that says, oh, this is a bad investment and my unit didn't grow. Mm. Uh, and then, so with that particular client, as I said, he wanted to buy two, but then we suggested and we found a house on a small lot of land uh, in Tenerife, very hard to find, uh, and they so they've they've kind of got the best of both worlds, and they were open to hearing our views on why we thought that was a really good option to put into the portfolio versus two wall source, for example. So, mm. yeah, so that was an example of a great client. Yeah, awesome. That's a that's a good story and uh, a, a good outcome by, for the client. Uh, it sounds like as well. Yeah, really um, I'm interested in. Um, there will be, I'm sure, people that come to you that say, Shane, you know, I want I want to invest in my financial future. Um, I'm looking for an investment property and I have a, a budget of X and I, I don't know anything else. I wonder if you could kind of parallel that with people that have decided to to perhaps do it themselves. Whenever I'm talking to a buyer's agent, I, I like to um I like to say, look, 
my preference is that people always use um, buyer's agents because they, they're worth the money, but there will always be people that decide they can't do it or they can't afford it. How do you go from that big funnel? So we were talking a little bit off air, probably should have hit record a little bit earlier. There's some good material, Shane. Um, yeah. But you talked about the people that kind of start with a real basic kind of open funnel and then you, um, you narrow that down to, okay, well, this is the strategy and this is the type of property that's going to, to meet with that strategy. So would you walk us through whatever isn't sort of your kernels, um, secret herbs and spices part of that journey? Yeah, so with that journey, I always find it's um, it's a process of working through with the clients, uh, typically the yield scenario that they're trying to achieve, and then just giving them an overview, like I mentioned to you before, about like how the city's laid out with regards to uh, block sizes and post-war and 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 uh, pre-war homes and that kind of thing. So what we might start with with that kind of client, um, where they've got a reasonably broad scope, and they're and often they might say to us. Oh, we don't we don't mind about the yield, um, but the reality is, I find everyone does have yeah. some sort of concern about that. So what we tend to do then is we show a range of options. So um, we'll show houses that are maybe a little bit closer into the city, um, where they're a bit of a more premium suburb, but maybe they're on a smaller block of land and the house is in a in a more basic condition, versus moving out a suburb or two where we could achieve a, a larger block maybe a house that's had a little bit of renovation work so it's achieving a better yield and then you know we'll, we'll have a I guess a mix of those even sometimes finding options where they might have some d- development potential right sorry I thought someone at the door um, and so um, yeah that whole question reminds me of a, a guy I helped a while ago where he was um, agnostic to yield I sent him 10 properties uh, and they're all quite different and he chose the ones that had the best yield and I right. thought, that's interesting. I thought you weren't too concerned about yield. And he said, I'm not really. And I said, well, I wanted to just see what you said about that. But the ones, a couple of these ones that you didn't choose can be subdivided. And he's like, oh, that that changes the, mm. the viewpoint. Uh, and so that's actually what we landed on, a, a house that was you know, in the middle of uh, being close or far out, or still on a 600 block, was within 200 metres of a centre zone here in Brisbane and it had the right frontage. And that means you can subdivide it. So um, we found the uh, the Goldilocks property, so to speak. You know, not not too hot, not too cold, just right. Uh, so yeah, it's a matter of just um, ha- helping guide people through the process. And the best way I feel to do that is actually show them real opportunities, and then uh, work through any questions they might have and discuss the pros and cons. And that's the best way to work through it. That's an interesting one. I've often found when people say, oh, "Look, oh, I don't know what what to pick," you know, A or B, and they say, "You pick," and then you go, "All right, B," and they're like. Oh, like, and suddenly it's like, oh, I didn't, yeah, I was hoping you'd pick A. Like, it was almost like they didn't know the answer until you picked the wrong one, right? Correct, right? And that's, um, and that's, it's too hard to work that out in a theoretical conversation. It's, mm. it's far better to do that with actual options, I find. Mm. Otherwise, the, the theory can just spin around forever and it never results in any kind of outcome except for maybe analysis paralysis. Uh, it's yeah. best, best to go, well, here's this property. Uh, this is the price. Here's the land size. Uh, last sold seven years ago for this figure. Uh, two doors down the road, same size uh, block, similar house, similar bed, bath, just sold for this figure. So we've got a bit of a read now on how that growth potentially could look. And, um, and you know, we've checked the rental pools and we've had a look and the rent's around this number. So the yield will look 
just like this. And so by doing that with a few different options, it really helps people do exactly what you said and inform their uh, their decisions and, and find out their own preferences that they might not have known. Yeah. And, it, and it's interesting how like, say, for example, if we're getting some graphic design done, the graphic designer say, what do you want it to look like? And I go, I've got no idea. But if you can give me three things, I'll pick the best one, right? Because right. It's, sometimes it's really hard to visualize. But if you put things in front of someone, it's like, yeah, well, I want that amount of yield or actually yield doesn't matter because the growth is more important or, yeah, yeah. like am I annoyed about maintenance um, if I can pick something else that's going to grow by $100,000 more in a year? Absolutely not. We'll pay right. the maintenance, right? But yeah. I think, you know, as human beings, we're kind of imperfect creatures. We we fear the pain of of maintenance and sometimes that can cloud our our judgment. Do you, you anticipate or, or I should say uncover that a lot, I presume? Yes, um, we certainly see that and we do actually show projections then and put property side by side and run that decision and go and, you know, put in some factoring in there for some maintenance. Um, but then, um, you know, that's that's really helping people make that longer term decision. We might show two properties and um, one's, you know, I don't know, $500, $1,000 a month to hold on to and the other one's 1500 And then we map out the growth and say, and and then we go, so over 10 years, it costs you 80 grand or whatever it is. Uh, however, the, the property is doubling uh, in that 10 year period, but the other one we showed with the high yield, it's, it's not doubling that period. It's only going up by, you know, X percent. So when you actually factor in its cost, maybe it's 60,000, um, but you're actually losing out on around two, 300 grand of equity. And that helps people start to decide as well. And that's, um, uh, you know, I find that's, you know, a really valuable piece of work for people to see. Mm, yeah, absolutely. It's hard to argue with it when it's there staring at you, right? Um, yeah, would you rather to spend 80 and your $800,000 property is worth 1.6 in 10 and you spend this much over the, the 10 years or would you rather spend 60 and your you know 650k property is worth uh, 800 yeah or yeah, or get $100 a week cash flow positive but it doesn't grow you know, like, yeah, yeah, and yeah. the cash flow seems at first glance, oh, yeah, great. Well, you mean I can buy an investment property and not only do I not have to pay anything, but it pays me? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I've seen that a lot where that's, um, you know, not resulted in any growth either in that 10 years. And it's unfortunate because then people had that expectation. They maybe looked at all that data of a, all these new things coming and some of it didn't eventuate, so the property didn't grow. Or mm. next door, there was hectares of spare land, so you know another three hundred lots have been developed since you bought it. Uh, that tends to um, scare me off in terms of trying to look into those areas. But um, you know, and it's also it's a pity to see when people kind of have that outcome. I had a lady I used to work with that did the same. Oh, it only cost me a cup of coffee a week, and um, bought a property, and then. Uh, two years later, I bought another one because it was so good. It's only costing mm. coffee a week. Ten years later, she called me and said, "You were you were right. These, if I sold both of these, I probably would. It probably cost me money." So, mm. and that was, you know, if you do that when you're forty five, fifty, and you, you're thinking that's your retirement plan, then you're quite stuck then because you're wanting to retire in a few years. You've bought these couple of properties, and you know, they haven't moved. 
Yeah, and I suppose if we think about the reason why we're investing, it, it's pretty bloody serious, right? We are wanting to change our financial future, our trajectory, what our what our day-to-day life is like in retirement, right? Or, you know, whether we're able to pass money down to our children or go on that round-the-world cruise or take that trip that we've been thinking about forever. It's important to get it right. And I think the data is still pointing to the fact that most people aren't getting it right. Most people only stop at at one property and very few go to sort of three plus, which is really probably that point where you are absolutely changing your financial freedom. So I wonder if in finishing, you can give us some insights into that and, and your best advice to not being that majority statistic that doesn't push the portfolio to the point where we actually have money in a sense that it's freedom tickets and we can decide how we want to live within reason. Yeah. So, so do you mind reframing that again? So it was a bloody long question, wasn't it? Was it was a long question. I feel <laughs> so, it changed a bit at the end. But no, I'll yeah. do it again. I'll do it again. Sorry. Um, so when it comes to investing in our financial future, it's a very serious thing, right? Because yes. it can really impact, well, what is our life going to be like? Are we going to be on the age pension? There's plenty of evidence to say that's not a really nice existence. Mm. Um, or are we going to be able to do everything that we want in life? So the majority of people are not hitting that point where they're, you know, three, four, five right. properties. What yes. would be your best advice to, to not be part of that majority of people that stop or one of two uh, at one or two and actually get towards what they envisage as being a lifestyle that they want? Uh, yeah. That's, so I, I think that, um, and I'm sometimes you, you might not need too many really either. So mm. it's it's more about what capital you've got available to get into the market and then um, considering then what your um, ability to save is to get the deposit for the next one. So that that's really a key to then being able to you know, build multiple properties into your portfolio. However, um, it's also, you know, if, if that lady that I'd mentioned just previously had actually just bought one property in an area that I'd suggested um, back the 10 years prior for 700,000 or thereabouts versus two, three fifty, $400,000 properties, uh, she would have been far better off. That would have been worth 1.4 million and she would have been in a better position versus just having two properties in 10 years that were still worth 800 combined, right? So mm-hmm. I, I do think it's, um, it is a matter of ensuring that you're selecting the right types of properties in the right areas. And then, um, considering uh, then, you know, how do you leverage from that? And that you might you might employ a bit of an accelerated strategy. You might find something where you can add a little bit of value to help you get that uh, equity for the next property and start adding to the portfolio. Um, but I think to, to sort of maybe summarise the answer, I think it just requires a good bit of planning up front that, um, that then, you know, you've, you've got the evidence as well of mm. those properties accelerating and growing so that, you know, when you make that decision that you are going to end up with, um, you know, a bit more free freedom tickets, as you say, when you get to that retirement age. And so does that really dictate that it's the plan first and the property second and the property is subser- subservient to the plan? Yes, I think so. Yeah. Because you've got to have that plan. And then once you have that plan and that goal in play, that can help guide Um, what type of property is going to deliver that for you. It's just the vehicle, right? Yeah, beautiful. Well, I look forward to a phone call in five years saying, gosh, that advice I got from you and Shane uh, has transformed my life. And that's what we're all in this for at the end of the day anyway, aren't we? Exactly, exactly. (laughs)
Shane, uh, a sincere pleasure. I learned a lot and uh, certainly got me thinking more about uh, my freedom tickets and, and my plan. And I hope people got a lot out of that as well. So thanks very much for sharing that goal today. My pleasure. And, you know, uh, I think Brisbane's a place to be too, by the way. So well, there we go. No, Plug one for else, Brisbane. no one else has an Olympics coming up. So it's a, it's a pretty good outlook for the next uh, you know, nine years or so until the Olympics. There you go. Well, we know who to call in Brizzy. Thanks, Shane. Yeah. Thanks, Mike. Cheers.